I've had several meetings with, um, you know, space-based groups, NASA and their suppliers, trying to convince them that I think actually space-grade components and space-qualified uh, hardware, electronic hardware, is typically far worse from a quality reliability perspective than automotive electronics. I mean, you know, it's it's a lot of manual operation, which is just rife for introducing defects. Um, the space guys typically have little to no insight on what's inside the integrated circuits that control the, that, spice, uh, that space flight hardware, while automotive guys are, are deep into the weeds. You know, I've always been to them, I'm like, rather than kind of build these custom three-off uh, hardware that costs, literally I've seen I've seen voltage converters for space that cost over $100,000. Like, why don't you just adjust your system requirements so you can buy automotive grade products? And in fact, they'd probably be far cheaper, probably much lower weight. Um, and you know what, just make them redundant and you probably have a far more reliable system than the process you're currently using now and you'd save the taxpayer literally tens of millions of dollars. That's my guest, Dr. Craig Hillman, next on Reliability Matters. Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to another episode of Reliability Matters. First, I'd like to welcome our new listeners. This podcast has grown steadily, and I'm grateful for our new listeners and for the sites that have syndicated our show, including Ascender Reliability, where you can hear this show and other reliability-focused podcasts at reliability.fm, and PCB Chat, where you can hear this show and other interviews between Circuit Assembly Magazine's editor-in-chief, Mike Buto, and industry professionals. My guest today is Dr. Craig Hillman. Dr. Hillman is the CEO and managing partner of DFR Solutions, located in Beltsville, Maryland. As CEO and managing partner, Dr. Hillman guides DFR Solutions with his broad-based expertise in design for reliability best practices, lead-free transition strategies, commodity and engineered product supplier qualifications, passive component technology, capacitors, resistors, etc., and printed board failure mechanisms. Dr. Hillman received his bachelor's in metallurgical engineering and materials science at Carnegie Mellon University. He received his PhD in materials from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and has a postdoctoral fellowship at Cambridge University. Now let's bring on our next guest, Dr. Craig Hillman. Welcome, Craig, to the podcast. I'm glad you're with me today. My pleasure, Mike. For our audience benefit, uh, we actually tried to do this last week, and we had, I guess, what we would have to call a reliability problem with some of the hardware. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit of an irony that uh, reliability or the, the lack of reliability falls even on podcasts about reliability. So thanks for your patience and thanks for your willingness to, to try it again. I'm glad things, things seem to be working this time. So just, just taking a stab at it, your company is DFR Solutions, and I'm guessing that stands for Design for Reliability. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, perfect. Well, good name. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, what's your background and what factors contributed to your interest in reliability? So my academic background is in the field of material science. I got a bachelor's degree in metallurgical engineering which actually uh, may no longer exist, and then a 
a PhD in material science. Um, and after I graduated, I, I went to school in Santa Barbara, California. After I graduated, an opportunity came up to kind of spend two years in England. And after much fretting about leaving the uh, sunny, warm shores of Southern California for the gray, wet skies of England, I decided to take the plunge. And I spent two years kind of enjoying doing some esoteric research. But what was interesting was when I kind of got up and looked around and saw where my compatriots had gone to, the ones who I had been colleagues with in Santa Barbara, an amazing number had actually gone north to the Bay Area and actually had um, joined positions in the reliability departments of these companies. And um, what they kind of told me was, uh, when it gets down to it, most reliability issues are a material issue. So people with background in material science tend to be a really excellent fit in terms of the field of reliability. It's kind of ironic because the, um, the Bay Area, famous for Silicon Valley, um, and coders you know, all have that kind of garbage in, garbage out scenario that they work with. Um, and I guess that applies to material products as well. Um, bad product in, bad product out, right? That's correct. So, um, you know, I was in uh, England, you know, I was a little tired of, you know, having to buy one pair of socks every other month to stay within budget. So I looked around for a, a job and was offered a position at the University of Maryland. They had a, a program there that focused on reliability, but very specifically reliability and electronics. And uh, I could see, you know, they were pretty good on the mechanical side, but they were kind of falling down the job on the material side. It seemed like a great fit. So I um, started off working there as kind of a, I don't know what the job title was. I think it was postdoctoral researcher or research professor or something like that. But pretty much that's where I got my initial introduction into reliability and reliability of electronics. On DFR's website, I read physics of failure, POF, or reliability physics, involves the use of degradation algorithms and uh, that describe how physical, chemical, mechanical, thermal, electrical mechanisms can decline over time and eventually induce failure. How are these degradation algorithms derived? So it, uh, you know, in some respects, it, I guess it really depends on the the mechanism and the previous legacy. Uh, sometimes, you know, we're building upon the shoulders of giants. Uh, to paraphrase Einstein, um, sometimes there are people going back to the 80s, 70s, even the 50s, who have, you know, kind of through a combination of knowledge of the physical mechanism and some extensive testing, were able to develop a degradation algorithm um, or what some people call a closed form equation to explain how things fail over time. And so sometimes we leverage or borrow that. Sometimes we'll actually use it as is directly from the literature. Sometimes they were on to something, but there needs to be a slight modification. Um, so we'll make those adjustments. And sometimes we have to develop things pretty much on our own. So it all kind of really depends on which mechanism we're talking about. So, you know, when, when DFR first started and we um, first started working on um, helping customers predict failures using um, physics of failure, really like I was, what we describe it as there's a physics of failure mentality that's important. That is the concept that um, failures are not random. Failures are um, not a given, that you can use uh, kind of knowledge and good science to avoid failures or predict failures. That's where it starts. 
And then using reliability physics analysis to do the actual prediction. So the degradation algorithms kind of fall under what we call kind of an RPA umbrella. Um, you know, when we first started, we leveraged a lot what was in literature, just did a lot of hustling and kind of looking up uh, good papers and sometimes very kind of um, hard to find papers that actually really kind of nail down what our customers were looking for. I can give you a, one great example, if you don't mind me kind of going on for a while. Sure. sure. A customer who was doing temperature humidity testing and was having um, failures. And this is a classic 85 degrees Celsius, 85% relative humidity. It was a very long life product, like 30 years in the field. So they were doing 85, 85 for 2000 hours. And the failure mode was actually in the polyurethane uh, housing that was degrading. So we were able to show them, again, through some you know review of literature, that there actually were studies that had been published on what we call, um, I guess, hydroscopic um, or hydrolysis-induced degradation of polyurethanes. And if you took the degradation mechanisms that that professor had come up with, you could show that 8585 for 2,000 hours was equivalent to something like 300 years in Miami or Singapore, <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is where, you know, this, these kind of degradation algorithms provide real value, right? Was um, not showing the customer that the tests they had developed, which they had grabbed from industry standards, were not in any way, shape, or form appropriate for the specific environment and materials that they were using. As we get older at DFR and we get bigger, uh, we, we actually had developed our own research department. So now we actually derive and develop our own degradation algorithms here within the, the organization. Excellent. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I remember uh, ads for products as, as things became electrified, um, so to speak, went from mechanical to electronic. I remember uh, the tagline in the, in the marketing departments, you know, no moving parts, you know, it, basically implying it would last forever because it's all electronic and, and not mechanical. So in the, in the, here's a real simple question, uh, particularly for those that are not in the electronic assembly industry, since this reliability podcast goes a little bit wider than that. Uh, in, in, on an electronic assembly, you know, we say there's no moving parts. Of course, there's you know, atoms moving within, you know, all over the place, but uh, electrical current is moving. But, but for the most part, there's no moving parts. So when, when a circuit assembly fails, is it the components that wear out or is it the materials that are, for example, adhering the component to the, to the board or, or the, the substrate itself that fails over time? So that's a, a good question. And, you know, I'll be a little wishy-washy. I'll, I'll play the role of Charlie Brown, right? I'll say it really kind of depends. Um, so one good example is let's compare um, electronics that go into a vehicle, automotive, versus electronics that power the internet, that go into data center. So um, electronics that go into a vehicle are often subjected to changing conditions. So they can be parked in a garage and then they're driving down a bumpy road. Um, they can go through what uh, I think one of the automotive OEMs describes as, well, these describe it as a traveling salesperson scenario. I think they now describe it as the soccer mom. But imagine somebody in Phoenix, Arizona, right? driving their car around and they're starting off, let's say at 10 a.m. in the morning in the middle of summer, right? So they drive to, um, let's say they drive to get their groceries, right? So the air conditioning is running, 
and they turn the car off, they close the door, they go inside, they come back in, right? They open the door and there's that swoosh of hot air as the inside and the interior of the car gets really hot. And they do this throughout the day. They do this four or five times a day. So there the temperature is gonna vary quite a bit from when it's nice and cool, let's say it's about 25 degrees Celsius, to working upwards of 70, 80 degrees Celsius in that, inside that car until you open that door again. So that's those kind of variations in temperature, those variations in mechanical loading, the failure mode in automotive does tend to be more what we call the interconnections or the interconnects. That is um, where the component is attached to the board, the, the solder joints, um, where the board is connected to another board, so connectors, um, these things kind of wear out over time because of these changes in environment. So expansion, contraction, vibration, all those mechanical forces are, are uh, degrading those, those connections. Is that right? Exactly. But by comparison, if I go to the uh, things that control the Internet in data centers, right, uh, we have product from Cisco, from Jupyter Networks. Those products are pretty much turn on, leave on. Right? They're left in the data center where they operate at a constant, uh, you know, the, the environment of a data center, at least they're trying to be, I guess there's some changes there, but for the most part, let's say it stays at around 25, 30 degrees Celsius all day long, all week long, all year long, right? And obviously it's sitting on a rack, so there's no vibration or mechanical shock. Um, those applications that they see wear out does tend to be kind of more the component. So maybe the um, capacitors are a classic problem, uh, either electrolytic capacitors because you have uh, evaporation of electrolytes or ceramic capacitors because you have a dielectric under a very high electric field and that eventually induces defects to form and bridge that dielectric and cause an electrical short. And more recently is um, if you actually just, there's some great articles by the folks at Semiconductor Engineering, specifically Ed Sperling, talk about um, Increasingly, we have problems with integrated circuits. The, that no moving part um, promise is now becoming problematic because of Moore's law. So we're clear, we are very strongly seeing issues in terms of wear out and aging of these state-of-the-art devices in these kind of applications. I'm glad you brought up automotive because I actually have a, a an automotive diatribe maybe wrapped in a question. So I'll start with the diatribe part. Speaking of automotive electronics, with the increasing production of electric cars, uh, the average number of hours circuit assemblies are expected to operate within a car's lifetime has dramatically increased. Automotive manufacturers design vehicles to operate, typical, typically automotive manufacturers design vehicles to operate for 150,000 miles or about 10 years without an excessive rate of failure. And unlike fossil fuel powered cars, traditional cars, much of the electronic systems in an electric car are always on. Once the car is shipped off the line, it never technically turns off. So that substantially increases the expected life of the circuit assembly. And then add to that the critical nature of circuit assemblies in modern cars, both gas, gasoline or you know, fossil fuel powered or, or electric motor powered. For example, I, I drive two cars. One is a, a 1968 Mustang. That's my weekend car. And one is a 2018 Cadillac. The only electronic device in my Mustang is the AM radio. It's got this AM transistor radio with the big mechanical buttons. Everything else is electric uh, or mechanical. So if the if the if 100% of the electronic systems fail on my Mustang, I lose the ability to listen to AM radio. On my 2018 car, 
equipped with adaptive cruise control, automatic lane centering, automatic parking, blind spot indicators, anti-lock braking, collision avoidance systems, and, and just a host of other safety features, as well as infotainment features. If some of those electronic systems fail, I may lose the ability to steer or brake or be warned of an impending collision. So my life depends on my ability to drive that car and the reliability of multiple circuit assemblies installed within that vehicle. So that's my diatribe. The question part is the industry dealing with the demanding reliability expectations of automotive electronics and, as you alluded to earlier, the harsh environments that they're contained in. So uh, I like your diatribe. I kind of feel for that as well. I think uh, my hope is once I kind of... um reach a point where the, I've written the last tuition check for my children. I actually, uh, I'll admit, I'm, I won't probably won't get a Mustang. My hope is to get a 1963 uh, midnight blue split window Corvette. Ooh, nice. It's very far off in the future. And unfortunately, when I, as I see that the prices rise of those vehicles, I feel that my dream is uh, slowly uh, escaping me. Unless you're, unless all that education money, um, you know, uh, resulted in uh, rich children. They can buy you yes, that as yes. a, Maybe they'll buy a little bit of gratitude. A, a, birthday, a nice birthday gift when he's 75. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully you still know how to drive, right? <laughs> well, by by then drive. you'll be the only driver. Everything will be autonomous. So, I mean, to be fair to our uh, friends in the automotive industry, what we have, I think we we've tend to forget, or at least we put rose-colored glasses on, on really the, the horrible reliability of cars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, it's it's hard to remember, you know, I mean, when we, we have a car now, like your car and hopefully the car that I have, that we only drive on weekends, we really put it through a lot less wear and tear than people who actually bought those cars and used it for day-to-day driving. And I don't know if you remember, but, you know, typically people would get rid of their cars after about maybe 50,000 miles. Sure, the warranty was only good for 12,000. Or 12,000, right? Or um, if you remember, never buy the car, never buy the first year car. Right, because they were really trying to figure out the reliability issues with the consumer. And once they heard back all the complaints, right, then the improvements would come with the second and third year model vehicle. And we don't really hear that as much anymore. And you know, there are an amazing number of people who drive their cars for 200, 300,000 miles. So it can be somewhat scary to think that we, all right, our lives are dependent upon electronics, and we've all been frustrated with some of the failures of electronics. But um, you really can't compare automotive electronics to electronics in our um, our children's toys or, a, you know, a doorbell buzzer in our, in our home or something that's not as, um, doesn't have the reliability demands that an automotive vehicle does. If you actually, what's really fascinating is we've done research on this and you can actually pull up reliability numbers of automotive electronics online from the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration. They publish these numbers. Now, typically the only publish these numbers um, as part of a um, safety investigation, so there has been an issue, but they'll compare the um, what they call the incident per thousand vehicles or IPTV number um, during a, a safety investigation to like before or after, and the um, the rates of an incident on automotive piece of electronics are extremely low. I think for like. We're looking at one investigation into like anti-lock braking systems. And I want to think, I want to say normally the um, incident per thousand vehicles per year, I want to say was like one in a hundred thousand, 
which really is 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 quite incredible and is actually quite a uh, um, an impressive kind of reliability number for any piece of electronics, especially one when you think about these ABS systems typically are you know um, extremely low cost because of some of the price sensitivity people have for vehicles. Right. Um, but I tell you, you know, I also am a little, I am, even though I'm deeply embedded in electronics and I'm not the first person to go out and buy the newest technology, I don't have a Amazon Alexa in my house, for example. Um, I would say that my experience, and if you look at the actual hard data, um, the electronics that are in automotive vehicles now are actually more reliable than their uh, electromechanical or pneumatic cousins from many years ago. I mean, uh, like, for example, brakes have gone from being pneumatic to almost purely electric. Um, and they're just seeing much better, um, much lower warranty returns, you know, because, you, you know, oh my God, how many times have we seen uh, movies from the 60s or 70s, right, where the um, the um, brake fluid line gets cut or broken, right? Right. And the fluid leaks out and now you can't, can't put the brakes anymore. They don't work. Right. Right. And steering the same way. Steering is all um, motorized now. It's electric now. Uh, exactly. Than, and again, uh, I think linkage. the general viewpoint is it's, this, it's a substantial improvement over the electromechanical um, or, uh, or pneumatic based uh, systems we had in the past. You know, same thing with planes, right? It's all fly by wire nowadays. Right. I guess the automotive industry has benefited from scale, uh, even though the cost of the comp- of the product is driven lower. Uh, mainly because of that scale. You know, it's kind of the, the American Airlines, I, I don't know if this is true, but, but you know, the, the, um, the urban legend that they got, you know, they got rid of the olives out of the martinis and they saved a million dollars a year in fuel, you know, something like that. I guess the economy of scale with automotive is, is even though they drive the cost down because they're going to make millions of one product, the fact that they're making millions of one product allows them to, uh, engineer in better reliability and engineer out problematic designs and problematic components and materials. Um, and they have, you know, they're not like us mere mortals that are building a few thousand products at best. They're building like cell phone manufacturers, millions of products. They can design for manufacturability. They can design for reliability uh, more than the average, you know, uh, contract manufacturer on the street can but with the volumes that the automotive industry produces. And actually, this is this, and, and and they're you know they're and they're very hard on their suppliers, and you know they're very much my way or the highway. And in fact, this is why I've had several meetings with um, you know space-based groups, NASA and their suppliers, trying to convince them that I think actually space-grade components and space-qualified uh, hardware, electronic hardware, is typically far worse from a quality reliability perspective than automotive electronics. I mean, you know, it's it's a lot of manual operation, which is just rife for introducing defects. Um, the space guys typically have little to no insight on what's inside the integrated circuits that control the that space uh, that space flight hardware. While automotive guys are are deep into the weeds, you know, I've always been to them. I'm like, rather than kind of build these custom three-offs uh, hardware that costs. Literally, I've seen I've seen voltage converters for space that cost over one hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, why don't you just adjust your system requirements so you can buy automotive grade products? And in fact, they'd probably be far cheaper, probably much lower weight. Um, and you know what? Just make them redundant, and you probably have a far more reliable system than the process you're currently using now. 
and you'd save the taxpayer literally tens of millions of dollars. You know, uh, a couple of podcasts ago, two episodes ago, I was interviewing someone from uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory who were doing work for NASA building boards uh, for, for uh, well, I shouldn't say, for their space customer, uh, as they preferred to say it. And their issue was they wanted to convert them from solvent cleaning to a water-based cleaning process. And as most... Uh, high reliability agents, particularly space agencies go and military type uh, contractors go, there are very risk um, sensitive and adverse to any change to your point. You know, they, they'll, they'll scrub things with solvent and a toothbrush, not these particular folks, but they would rather do that because that's what worked in 19, uh, during the space race in the Apollo missions. That's how they put boards together. And they're going to not want any changes because they're concerned that if something fails in space, it's impossible or very uh, insanely expensive to fix, i.e. Hubble, Hubble telescope. Uh, so that particular interview was about changing this particular space agency's mindset to consider new possibilities. That's completely different in automotive. Automotive is going through this rampant um, chain reaction of change right now as they're adopting new technologies and using their their sheer scale to drive the reliability up uh, as opposed to the one-offs, you know, the, the five voltage regulators that a space agency might buy for one product at a, at a million dollars a piece. So it's, it's, uh, I think the automotive industry has two competing factors. One is to drive the cost down and the other is to drive the reliability up. And it's probably one of those rare, um, institutions that can get away with both successfully. Well, and I think they, they also just have the right mentality about it. I mean, you know, one of the problems with um, space and military is they believe they can screen out all defects, which I think history has shown is a, is a false assumption. Whereas automotive, they go into the process, right? Prove to me that your process is under control, right? If your process is under control, then the chance of defects escaping gets greatly reduced. But if you kind of assume that standard, pro, you know, is that's the problem with like not doing change? Sometimes change can be good. I can change my process to reduce the amount of defects to make it more control. If instead I keep the process the same, I just assume screening captures everything. It results in just, you know, these big issues. I mean, right. one thing the space is not really typically willing to admit is they make this big statement about, oh, you know, it's out there in space. We can't repair it. Right. Which is true, but they still do redundancy. Right. Because of that. Right. And, um, when you start doing the numbers, right, you can very quickly get to very high reliability with very little redundancy in the system. So then the question gets asked is, why are you doing all this redundancy and yet spending, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars for a voltage converter that you could buy for $15, right? That's all automotive grade using all automotive grade components. Right. Right. I mean, heck, for that price and that weight, I could build like, I could do like triple redundancy or quadruple redundancy to the point where, you know, using classic reliability calculations, it would literally be impossible for that system to ever fail. Sure. Just like the airline model, you know, double, triple, quadruple redundancy on their, right. on their right. uh, critical uh, parts. Let's right. change the subject think, a little. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So I think, I think that's, that's what gets me very excited about the whole SpaceX and Blue Origin is I think wholesale, they have rejected this concept of space grade. And they've been very successful, right? And uh, what's been great is there are definitely elements within NASA 
not all space organizations, but definitely within NASA who have seen that and kind of seized upon it and said, you know what, this is a, a revolution in how we deal with reliability in space. And if SpaceX can be successful at this, right, we want all our suppliers to consider this as well. So we've seen some aspect of that and we're very pleased with that. And, and it goes back to, I think, you know, one thing that SpaceX is doing, I think, is, you know, embracing or adopting this physics of failure based mentality. Right. Failures are not random. Failures can be predicted. Failures can be accounted for. Right. So let's take that approach and we're going to make a much more robust system that's much lower cost than this, you know, yeah, arbitrary concept of screening and random empirical prediction methodology. It's the consumerization of space. It's driving the, the cost down, reliability up. So let's change uh, subjects for a second. I'm going to I'm going to talk about uh, British uh, crime solving and tie it into your company. Sherlock Holmes was a fictional private detective created by British author Sir Arthur Doyle. Uh, and Holmes referred to himself as a consulting detective and was known for his proficiency and observation, forensic science, logical reasoning, uh, which he employed when investigating cases. One of your company's products, one of DFR Solutions products is called Sherlock. Can you explain the similarities between the fictional Sherlock Holmes and the real Sherlock product? Sure. I mean, if you think about right, what was revolutionary about Sherlock was that he used science to solve crimes. He used good, robust engineering practices to solve these crimes. So we view our software in a similar manner, right? We are going, using good, robust engineering practices to, I guess, solve – if you view crimes as a failure of the human society, right, we are solving – using – good robust engineering practices or good science to solve the failures that exist within electronics. So let's switch the subject again and talk a little bit about batteries. With the recent battery issues in the last few years with Samsung mobile phones resulting in fires and personal injury and all this drama, um, and and that, I, that makes me think of the growing electric vehicle market, particularly here in California, where it seems like everyone's driving some kind of battery-operated vehicle. Is is there cause for concern? Is this a systemic issue within battery technology or is it a one-off with, with a, one particular brand of phones? So it's actually um, – so the Samsung uh, problem is actually very interesting. It's actually a two-fold problem. So um, on the one hand, right, it's, it's a kind of a – well, it's typical engineering challenge, right? How many potatoes can you stuff into that sack, right? And then how do you account for um, tolerance effects? So um, without with being with um, being very transparent and saying that I've never talked to Samsung about this problem. I'm not. There's no everything I'm talking about is kind of already out there on the internet. Um, what you find is the first failure, so Samsung actually had two battery failures. The first was Samsung was trying to get the most energy in the smallest volume for its uh, mobile phone, right? Which it did quite successfully, but it failed to account for this combination of batteries tend to swell over time. Um, batteries can have some variation in terms of volume dimensions. And then the uh, area or volume within the phone also can have some variation. And that's um, if you kind of, everything kind of comes together in terms of a little bit of swelling, slightly larger batteries, slightly smaller pocket for the battery to sit in, then you get these pressure points that occur on the battery. 
If these pressure points are high enough, they can kind of cause the anode and cathode to come into contact, and that's where you get the ignition events that they were seeing. So it's one of these situations where just Samsung didn't really do kind of robust engineering. I mean, it was a little too aggressive in terms of design. Too, too much too soon. Correct. When they panicked and they switched to a different battery vendor, um, that battery vendor um, built out and my apologies, people may say this, I'm doing this off the cuff a little bit, so there might be some kind of mis-memory on some aspects of it, but I believe when they switched to another battery vendor, that battery vendor kind of had some quality issues, especially in terms of, I believe, the separator, I think, between the anode and cathode wasn't done quite correctly. So they kind of got snake bitten twice. I think what we call kind of a classic kind of reliability issue, because they often view reliability as kind of design-driven. You're making design decisions that will cause degradation or failure um, too quickly. And the second one actually was more of a quality issue. I would say the supplier was not very effective in terms of its quality control. I read also there was a, a dendrite issue within the batteries. And do you know anything about that? Uh, that may be, I think that may be related to the second one, I believe. Okay. Uh, if I remember correctly, this, the second failure. My colleague, Dr. Vidu Chala, is very well-schooled in this, and unfortunately, she's in another meeting. I, otherwise, I would pull her in for this exact interview. But that's my okay. recollection based upon some of the presentations she's given internally and to other customers regarding how to avoid uh, battery failures. Um, so actually, Dr. Vidu Chala is actually quite busy quite busy actually um, solving battery issues kind of around the world um, for our customers and what she's told me if I recall correctly is I mean this is kind of classic new technology ch shakeout and challenges both from a technology perspective as well as from a supply chain perspective I mean I think the the great analogy is when um, everybody started um, heading over to China in the kind of let's say the late starting in the early 90s, I would say, maybe mid, actually, well, probably mid-90s. Let's say start going to China in mid-90s, all the way through to kind of the um, middle 2000, late 2000s, right? They were going to, there, were, there was a huge explosion of suppliers who had kind of limited experience in building electronics, right? And they ran to challenges. I mean, I'm sure as you probably saw, Mike, right? I mean, we came across, oh my God, we must have had at least 30, 40, um, incidents around just cleanliness of those electronics coming out of China. Sure. They didn't really understand yeah. cleanliness and what was important, both at the circuit board level as well as at the, at the assembly level. And I think you're seeing something analogous to, to batteries right now. The big battery suppliers, the ones who supply Tesla, for example, or supply Apple um, cell phones, um, they, they build, um, they have a very high quality control. They have a very good understanding of the technology, which actually lithium ion has not changed very much in many years. So there's starting to be some plateauing of, of technology and changes the materials and changes, at least right now. Um, but like the Panasonics and Samsungs of the world, uh, notwithstanding the Samsung uh, phone incident, those batteries tend to be very high performing, very good quality, very standard form factors. Where you're seeing a lot of the battery issues occurring is um, companies who need non-standard form factors for their batteries. So I think the terminology, they, they're more like these pouch cells, I believe is the term, is a, is a term that's being used. And you just can't go to the major battery vendors, especially with lower volumes, and buy pouch cells. You go to these mid-tier suppliers. And the mid-tier suppliers, almost overwhelmingly from China, you know, um, don't understand the technology and the process as well as they should. 
right? So you run into these problems, right? Sometimes on the design side, sometimes on the quality side. Interesting, which kind of leads me to my second to last question. What, if any, industry trends keep you up at night? Besides tuition for your kids. Yes. Besides tuition for our kids. Uh, So I would say is, I mean, the problem is it doesn't, sometimes, um, I guess you could say I serve two masters. Trends that would keep me up at night as a consumer allow me to sleep as a business owner because I know that we're going to be needed to solve these problems. Right. Um, The problem's coming, right? The problem is coming. I mean, the big, what are the big problems that we see? Right. So, I mean, the, 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 where are we, where are we being kept very busy? So the batteries are a big issue, right? These, and, and, um, you know, they will go away over time. I'm highly confident, but I think over the next kind of, who knows, I would say like next two to 10 years is going to continue to be a problem, especially as a lot of, uh, we have a lot of IOT, a lot of wearables, a lot of companies that, and not historically used lithium ion are now moving over to lithium ion and again cannot use these standard form factors. This is increasingly going to be, a, going to be an issue. Um, I would say uh, the um, downside of Moore's law, I think kind of keeps us up at night. Um, I think companies are buying state-of-the-art integrated circuits, not really being aware that the way they're fabricated, you can start having failures within three years, maybe a, you know three to five years, depending upon the environment and how you're using them. And that's not really being well communicated up and down the supply chain. So we're starting to see companies with having um, surprises in the field and having a certain degree of dissatisfaction in terms of the use of that um, those devices. Um, and probably the, um, I guess the next big challenge is, I guess it would, well, we'll call people call IOT, the increasing use of electronics in non-standard environments and very aggressive environments. So, you know, there's a lot of excitement. There's another kind of reliability that we come across called site reliability, right? So predicting the reliability of large complex um, factories, for example, or refineries. Um, and they are getting much better handle on these things, or engines even actually. And they're getting much better handle on these complex systems by putting um, a lot more intelligence in the sensors uh, around these systems. But these sensors with digital electronics in there are seeing temperatures far above 85 degrees Celsius. Um, and so that's starting to be a real challenge we're finding. You know, people are using digital electronics, you know, in pretty severe operating environments. And they don't have the budget that let's say a NASA has where they can spend $100,000 and make it robust when it sees 100 degrees Celsius or 125 degrees Celsius. So those are kind of the interesting challenges. I don't think they keep me up at night, but they kind of um, get me juiced to come in in the morning. I guess one issue that would keep you up at night is if you woke up one morning and everything was reliable. (laughs) <laughs> you'd live in a safe place, uh, but you wouldn't have any money coming in. So, um, you know, I guess uh, there's always a, a bright side to things breaking because it does generate uh, uh, business at some point. Uh, you've got a, my last, uh, our last topic here. You've got a design for reliability conference scheduled for March 21st through 28th in Baltimore. Tell me a little bit about that conference. Uh, what kind of materials will be presented and who should attend that? 
Oh, so that well, that that keeps me up at night because I, I'm very excited about that conference. So one of the blessings of working here at DFR is we work over, with over a thousand companies in the electronic space. So you can imagine we work with companies in almost, well, I would say, we work with companies in almost every major market vertical. So companies in mobile phones, um, gaming systems, appliances, uh, telecom, automotive, aerospace, space, uh, downhole drilling, uh, industrial, medical, um, all these spaces. And so we uh, get to see people who really are the best at what they do. And so uh, this year, we actually have invited those people to come and speak at our conference. And so I'm just very excited to kind of see kind of the best of the best will be speaking about how they ensure quality and reliability um, in their organization, what kind of processes they put together, what kind of organization they put together. We're talking about people from like Dell and um, Lennox and um, TRW and Aris. Uh, so very excited to hear about these people. These are people who typically don't go to conferences. They're kind of the hidden gems within our industry. And com combine that with um, great examples of how to do reliability physics analysis, how to implement it into your process. And then um, having my team kind of also teach uh, attendees kind of best practices at a more kind of fundamental level. So. We'll have um, DFR staffers talking about best practices in connector selection, best practices in micro via design, best practices in selecting batteries, um, best practices in um, electromechanical reliability assurance, uh, you know, um, semiconductor packaging. So really kind of a really kind of very well-rounded, kind of very high level, but very deep kind of insight into quality and reliability of electronics. I really think it's it's really like nothing else kind of out there right now. So um, it should be great. If someone wanted to go to that, what's the best, how did they get a hold of you? How do they sign up for that or any future conferences if they're listening to this, if they're listening to this podcast after March 28th? So for the conference, it's actually, it's great, right? If you simply type in DFR conference 2019, Google will take you straight to the website. It's no easier than that. Um, if you want to reach out to us um, before the conference or after the conference on anything other than the conference, you can reach out to me. Uh, my email is first initial last name, so chillman at dfrsolutions.com. You can also call the main number, which is 301-474-0607. Uh, or simply look up DFR Solutions on the internet. Awesome. So uh, thanks for doing this uh, with me today. And I appreciate the work that you and your company does uh, in our industry to increase reliability. Well, Mike, I appreciate you kind of putting this podcast together. I think it's great. All right. Thank you very much. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to Reliability Matters. If you like what you hear, please be sure to give us a like. Just click the like or heart button below. If there are any reliability-based questions you'd like to have answered or specific topics discussed, let me know. I can be reached at mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. You can also listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, aqueoustech.com, pcbchat.com, spreaker.com, or our newest affiliate, Ascendo Reliability on reliability.fm, a site dedicated to all things reliability. 
Once again, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Reliability Matters. In the meantime, keep doing it right.